Hello, and welcome to the Needs Improvement Podcast, your regular deep dive into reimagining mental health and well-being in the workplace. I'm your host, Nicholas Whitaker, coach and co-founder of the Changing Work Collective. In every episode, we sit down with thought leaders in organizational health, as well as individuals who've navigated the complexities of mental health, well-being, and belonging in the workplace. Our goal? To dismantle the stigma surrounding mental health, ignite meaningful dialogue, and inspire both employees and leaders to revolutionize the way performance is gauged at work. So if you're eyeing a healthier, happier chapter in your professional life, you're in the right place. Together, let's transform the places we work into the places we would love to be. Let's dive into what needs improvement. All right, welcome, Dean. Hey, Nicholas, great to be with you. It's really good to have you here, man. I really appreciate it. I've been listening to your audiobook for like the last four or five days. So I feel like we've already been intimately introduced to one another, though I know we've only kind of just ping pong back and forth online uh, a little bit. But for our listeners who maybe aren't familiar with you and uh, your book and what you've been up to, why don't you give us a little introduction? Tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, sure. Well, I, I do live in Tasmania, so that's a long way from where most of your listeners, listeners probably are. So, yeah, I've, I've just published a memoir that's called Line in the Sand. And in a nutshell, it traces my my healing journey uh, from uh, serious occupational trauma that I experienced as a as a journalist and bureau chief for the Reuters news agency, working overseas in in conflict zones uh, covering the Iraq War, the Bali bombings, the Boxing Day tsunami. The big event, major traumatic event for me, was having two staff killed. Two two of my staff were killed during the Iraq War. Uh, in an incident um, that uh, most people have heard about uh, when in 2007, killed by a US Apache gunship. Uh, And all of this trauma accumulated, caught up with me, and I became suicidal. One one day in 2016, I ended up in a psych ward in Melbourne with a bunch of veterans, a bunch of coppers. And that that started my journey back to uh, finding... um, trying to find the the solutions to why I'd gotten to that point, trying to find the answers. And here we are now, the book's out, it took seven years. And the process of writing that book was was partly a process of discovery of what what do I what did I need to do to to get myself back to a life where essentially I could live and and be functional and and reconnect with my family. It's been an incredible journey. Uh, I've learned so much and it's uh, I've made some amazing uh, friends along the way, and um, I'm just glad to be here. Mm. Well, I'm glad you're here too, Dean. And and just as someone who's experienced uh, mental health struggles of their own, uh, I just really want to thank you for stepping out there and for sharing your story and just being so vulnerable and public about that. Um, there's not enough men, I think, that are talking about these experiences. And I think that's the thing that originally really resonated with me was like how transparent and how forward you were about these experiences and how articulate you were about talking about the experience of going through traumatic uh, growth and traumatic uh, experiences and, and what that actually looks like for folks. So, again, just wanted to thank you for being here and for, for sharing in that way. Yeah, no worries, Nicholas. Well, it was interesting, you know, so this was... I was writing a memoir, right? So obviously I went and read a lot of memoirs before I, while I was writing mine. The vast majority were women who wrote great memoirs. And that is because men don't, they just don't show, they just don't put it out there like women do. So I, I reckon I probably read a, maybe a hundred memoirs, maybe 90 of them were by women. Yeah. I, I think that says it all. Yeah, I think it does. You know, and I think to me that really ties back to maybe 
I'm kind of curious your thoughts on this, like the experience of so many men who are going through trauma, they're going through difficult experiences. Of course, not all of them are going to be in conflict zones or dealing with death in the workplace, but trauma shows up in so many different ways. And, and what I've noticed with clients and even with myself is we have this tendency to turn the lens back on ourselves. What's wrong with me? What could I do differently? Um, and we keep quiet about that. And I'm kind of curious your thoughts on that and maybe where that comes from and like what the impact of that is. Yeah, I think this is one of the biggest dangers for men is this tendency to isolate, this tendency to withdraw. And I think it's partly because we are from an early age, from while from when we're young, we are led to believe that it's important to be tough. I don't I don't think it matters whether you live in Australia or you you grow up in the United States. That is that is what society expects of you, or that's what you think society expects of you. And so when, when trouble comes along, when trauma comes along, you're expected to deal with it and get on with it. And when you can't uh, and you, you feel like you're struggling, you don't reach out for help because that's not what the expectation is. You're expected to deal with it. And so when you can't, you turn inwards and, and then it, it just, and, and also you just don't have the language. You don't know how to ask for help. I didn't know how to ask for help. And here I was a journalist who'd traveled the world. So we have to break down this in, into just small pieces and explain to men that asking for help is actually an act of strength. And in some, in some cases, you've actually got to, I think you've almost got to give men the language. This is how you do it. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a such an important point. Like the language, and, and this is again, something I've encountered with my own, in my own right. You know, when I was experiencing anxiety and panic attacks and when I was having a mental health collapse, the immediate thing that I thought was I need to keep this quiet. You know, I want to make sure that people don't see that as being a weakness because if they see that, then my entire livelihood, my whole identity is going to be a threat. And I'm kind of curious from your perspective, like as you were going through your own experiences, if I remember in the book, it was a little while down the road before you actually started to identify that you needed help. Like what was that tipping point for you? Where I was like, no, no, I, I actually need need some help here. Yeah, and so that's the that's one of the interesting things about trauma and people who've been through PTSD will understand this that sometimes the kicker can take years. It can sometimes it can sometimes take decades, right? You can still function for some for many years uh, even though that trauma might have occurred <clears throat> in the distant past. You know, look t take for instance people who have been victims of childhood abuse or whatever. So for me it was it was actually really uh, I'd been out of, I, I'd left Iraq and been out of Iraq almost eight, nine years before I got the PTSD diagnosis. Uh, but it was, and that was the point where family life had almost had become intolerable for my, for my wife and my kids. I was just impossible to live with. All those PTSD symptoms were off the charts, but you know what? I was still doing a pretty good job at work. Hmm. And, and so I think this is where it becomes difficult is that People see themselves as still being, you know, semi-functional professionally, but at home, they're a complete mess, a complete wreck. Uh, and it, it's trying to help people understand that, that that's, that is the, that is the sign. That's usually the biggest sign when someone's personal relationships have gone to hell, mm -hmm. that something's wrong. Yeah. You know, and I think the interesting thing about your memoir and kind of your whole approach is like you really put language around this that I had not heard really in other domains before, this whole idea of moral injury. I wonder if you could talk to me a little bit about that and, and how that maybe is different than what we typically think of as trauma. 
Yeah, no, moral injury uh, for me, you know, to sum it up, it's it's the it's the notion of when uh, someone's idea of what's right has been deeply violated. All right. So we all want to be good people. We all want to do the right thing. When someone's notion of what's right has been so deeply violated, it can cause psychological distress. And it doesn't take long before you start thinking of all the possibilities for how that might happen. And in my case, uh, I, I, moral injury occurred for me because my staff were killed in Iraq and I failed to protect them. That was my responsibility. They were killed on my watch. But then for a lot of people, moral injury occurs in a workplace setting where they are betrayed by their organization. Uh, and that might occur through uh, sexual harassment. It might occur through bullying. It might occur where, where people are made redundant at the drop of a hat. And you know, you've experienced this, Nicholas, yourself. Thousands of, tens of thousands of tech workers have experienced this in the United States, where it's, it's where someone has been betrayed in a high stakes situation by someone in a higher authority. So whether that person is an organization, whether that person is, it might be an institution, it might be someone going through the justice system and justice is not served. And so what, what moral injury does is I think it helps give people a framework. Uh, it gives them language for trauma with that moral dimension. The problem with PTSD, which has been around for 43 years now, is that it captures it captures the life threat, it captures the fear component of trauma, it captures the danger that comes with trauma that we all know fairly well. Moral injury captures the moral element of trauma, and that's what's been missing for so long. It's such a powerful way of thinking about the the impact of being in these environments and running up against you know, this values misalignment uh, or these moral misalignments. And, you know, I remember talking to you, it was probably like as long as a year and a half ago. And I was going through a, a similar type of experience where the, the leadership that I was working with was so grossly misaligned with my values. And even what they were saying to me uh, as like, here are the values that we espouse, here's the beliefs that we have, were out of alignment with what we were actually seeing and put into practice. And that to me spoke of a, a traumatic experience, but it wasn't until I, I heard of moral injury and heard of your story that suddenly it clicked for me. And it was like, hmm, there's more to this than, than what we've been discussing in terms of the, the overall conversation around injury and the overall conversation around trauma. And, you know, I think one of the things that I also tend to notice is that uh, when we start to talk about trauma, there, there tends to be this kind of... Uh, traumatic Olympics that occurs where it's like, well, you know, Dean experienced this thing. It was way worse than anything that I experienced. Like I can't necessarily say that I've been traumatized or that I've dealt with this. My understanding is the brain doesn't know the difference between one type of trauma or another type of trauma. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of curious your thought, just having talked with other people along your journey. And if it's something that you've noticed. Yeah, sure. Let's go back to values misalignment, Nicholas, because that is really important. And th this is a really important point because uh, so many people find themselves in organizations where uh, they are just, they are shocked at, at how organizations operate and how contrary that is to the expressed values. And, and they, they feel, they feel sick at this, right? And they're questioning the, the very themselves and, and why am I, and why do I feel this way? 
people are questioning why do I why do I why does this make me feel sick? And and I think what it shows actually is that, is that those people actually have a good moral compass. They have good values, and when you act on your values, you're actually going to be you're actually going to you you will be a mentally healthy person. But for a lot of people, they don't have a choice. They have mortgages to pay. They have school fees to pay, and so they end up having to work in these sorts of these sorts of places. But I think at least understanding that it can be morally, potentially morally injurious to to have to to operate within that sort of area, to understand the, the consequences, I think at least by giving people language, then it helps understand where those feelings and emotions are coming from. Um, and and I, I think it also serves to underscore just how important values are, right? And 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 that's and I think that's I think that's really essential when it comes to and I've never actually heard the term trauma Olympics, but I like that. Uh, and it's so true. Even before I went into the psych ward for my first admission, I was playing down my whole experience. Right. So here I was. I'd spent probably more time covering the Iraq war than just about apart from one or two Australian journalists. No Australian journalist has spent more time in Iraq than I had. Covered the Bali bombings, Boxing Day tsunami, seen thousands of dead bodies, covered earthquakes that people will never remember. And yet I didn't think I was worthy of that treatment because I'd never been shot at. I'd never been blown up, never been kidnapped. You know, so I was I was putting myself on on some sort of in some sort of comparison with journalists who'd covered the Vietnam War and thinking, oh, you're not like those people, right? You don't deserve this treatment. And it took me, it sort of took me a few days. It, being in that psych ward to realize that everyone deserves treatment. Everyone who has been through trauma uh, experiences it differently. And people's background will determine as well how they respond to trauma. And what, what I find traumatic might not be the same for someone else. And so what I say to people now, and I've been saying it for years, is don't get into the comparison game. Because if you if you start doing that, you won't get yourself treatment. You'll play down your own experiences. And if you if you get into the comparison game, then where does it end? And you mentioned in your book, uh, Victor Frankl, Man's Search for Meaning. Yes. And this was a, a, a book that was really a lighthouse book for me to help me unlock an understanding that, oh, trauma may have occurred here. Right. And there might be something that I'm holding on to and dealing with that is bigger than what I'm allowing myself to feel. And this other element to that book of like, you know, having a purpose, having a why, having a direction that you're going to. To me, that was really poignant in your memoir as well about mental health and mental health awareness and getting out there and trying to help other people better understand these things. You know, I'm kind of curious, like, you know, where does Viktor Frankl sit in your life these days? Like, is this still something that you think about and it still comes up? Oh, oh yeah, totally. You would not believe how many people have said to me that they have read Viktor Frankl's book, right? I mean, it is just phenomenal. This is a book that he wrote in nine days after his release uh, in 1945 from, I can't forget which concentration camp it was. It might have been, I'm not sure if it was Auschwitz or one of those. And... And yet it is to every bookshop you go in virtually, you'll find it. And it is just, it is so inspirational because this is, this was the worst of the worst experiences that probably anyone could ever have happened to them. And yet he came out of that 
and he 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 had a, he he found purpose. He was able to find purpose in the suffering that he experienced, and I think that's why that's why books by Holocaust survivors are so popular, right? Because these folks have been able to find meaning and purpose in their lives despite what they went through. And um, I, I just uh, his book. I was so lucky to get to be recommended his book literally within the, the second day of my first psych ward admission. And I read it in one go and I just thought, wow, uh, you can find meaning from suffering. That was just, that was really prophetic for me. And he, his book did become a lighthouse for me. And, um, and that's why I wanted to weave parts of his teaching through my book, because I think it is so, it is so universal and it's the sort of book everyone should read. And you can just go back and read it again and again, because there's just so many great messages in there for everyone. You know, I'm kind of curious, too, just in terms of your recovery journey. And I remember reading in your book, there was a particular part where you were talking about really wanting to get out there. I found my purpose. I found my meaning. I want to get out there and help help solve for some of these problems. And the folks that you were working with were like, no, no, we need to be patient here and we need to slow down. And I'm kind of curious, like now looking back on that experience, like, do you feel like the the pace and the, the the cadence that you were taking still made sense, or you know, w- would you have wanted to be able to start earlier than you did? Like, what's what's your thinking on that at this point? <laughs> it's a it's a classic question, Nicholas. Because so, just for example, last week, two I was in Sydney for two days. Right, I did. Uh, I pushed myself too hard. I did a bunch of talks, a bunch of presentations in the city, I, I know Sydney, so it wasn't like I was in a place I, I was unfamiliar with, but I overdid it, right? Only two days, but by that evening, I felt sick. I, I saw a bunch of people I hadn't seen for years. I was speaking about my journey, my life, and to various audiences, including one audience, <clears throat> more than 300 people, got a lot of questions about all sorts of things, and I overdid it, and I felt so rough on the end of that second night I had to go to bed at about six o'clock and I thought, you know, after everything, you know, you pack too much into those two days. And, and that was just, a, that was a, that was, and I got home and I said to Mary, my wife, I said, you know, I just, there's a bit of a lesson in that one. Um, while I feel fantastic and I feel like I really understand myself really well, I just, I just got to be a bit more careful next time. And, and so that was the, that was always uh, a little bit of, it was actually a little bit of a source of friction almost between myself and my treating team. Because at one point they wanted me to sign a contract, an actual document on my first psych ward admission to say I was going to, I was going to slow down because I was so obsessed with, with all the reading I was doing and the writing and, and everything. Um, I was just like this journalist who was just, I was covering this huge story and I had to finish it. And they wanted me to, they just wanted me to take it a bit more slowly. And I think they were right, to be honest. And what happened was that when I got out of the psych ward, I took on projects that just, I I just, I would read about something. I'd say, I'm going to help that person. Or I, I just got involved in things that were really not related to my own healing process at all. And or had nothing to do with stuff I was trying to do at Reuters. And I just took on too much. And then I just had, I would have these mini breakdowns because of that, because I just didn't have the capacity to do everything. And I hadn't built in uh, time to just do nothing, to just, to just give myself time to recharge, 
and decompress. And I think that was probably, that is probably one of the biggest lessons I've learned in this whole journey is that anyone who's been through trauma, who's going through any sort of uh, mental health recovery has to build in that time to just let the body recover, to let the brain recover, to let the soul recover. You won't regret it. You know, and I think that that's an interesting point just in its own right, because so often I get the question, well, how long is this going to take? You know, when am I going to be healed? Right? <laughs> and it's a question I even ask myself. It's like, when, when is this, when is this going to be over? And at least what I've discovered and learned is in like the 10 years of dealing with my own trauma recovery is like, it, it kind of never is necessarily over. It's just, you learn how to integrate it. You learn how to manage it differently. Like I know now what my boundaries are. I know now how not to push myself in different areas. I'm kind of curious if that's like your experience as well. Yeah, look, there is no end point with trauma. Uh, no, there's no end point with mental illness either. But once I think you get over that, okay, people have just got to get over it, right? There's no cure. But, and I think this is where you start talking about post-traumatic growth, is that you can, it, it's possible to lead incredibly rich, fulfilling lives with trauma, with mental illness, because it gives you an insight into life that you wouldn't have otherwise. You see the world with with great empathy. You're able to see other people who, and, and you can see them in a way that you wouldn't be able to see them otherwise. And that opens a window into other people's worlds and they will share with you things that they wouldn't share otherwise. I wouldn't trade that for anything. I, I'd much rather be the person I am now than the one I was 20 years ago. Wouldn't swap it. You know, you mentioned it just briefly, like this idea of post-traumatic growth. You know, what was that like for you? You know, like where, where is the post-traumatic growth kind of manifested in your experience since you've been moving through your journey? Yeah, now it was a concept I came across fairly early on because I was doing a hell of a lot of reading. But I think it was something, and I think it is something that sort of happens organically. It's not, it's not like something you sort of think and say, oh, that was post-traumatic growth happening there. It's something you notice or observe when you reflect and think back on it. But it's just little things. It's, it's just the time that you consciously put into spending with your family. Uh, it's the time that you spend doing stuff that is, is good for your own mental health, or it's the time that you will spend doing something for your community where you're doing something that is just for the greater good. And, and when you look back on that, and then someone will come back to you and say, I can't thank you enough for what you've done, right? Or, you know, for me, I, I really felt it after I left Reuters in early 2020. And, you know, I left Reuters very, very distressed because I'd had a, it, it was just, I'd got to the point where I was so stressed at the resistance to what I was trying to do in my global mental health role that I thought it had been a complete failure. I basically left because if I stay any longer, I'm going to just end up in the psych ward again because of the resistance to what I was trying to do. But then when I left, I had so many people, so many colleagues reach out and say, you helped me get help. You know, you, you helped, you helped normalize the conversation around mental health. And so while I wasn't able to put anything institutional in place in the organization, I was able to help people in an individual capacity. And, and that was something that, that for me was just, it, it meant a lot to me. And, 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 and to me, that was, that was, that was post-traumatic growth right there. Yeah. And that, that, that just so resonates with me. I mean, that, that has been the surprising thing about my experience after getting let go at Google. 
the folks that keep reaching out to me, and I still get calls to this day from folks, is like, thank you so much for everything that you did to help destigmatize mental health within the company. Thank you for the initiatives and the, the efforts that you put together. But I too walked away from that experience feeling like I hardly moved the needle at all because there wasn't like those institutional, like embedded ways of thinking about this that were was what I was hoping to, to, to succeed with. We just weren't able to actually do that. But it's a good reminder that like just being vocal by talking about these things, there's people that you touch every day that you probably won't even know but it gives them permission to have the experience that they're having. And it gives them permission to maybe ask for help in ways that they would not have thought to do otherwise. Yeah, totally. Nicholas, I, I agree. I agree hundred percent on that because I'm, I am uh, skeptical that organizations are ever really going to embrace mental health and make it a top priority. I, I'm just skeptical. So the more we can keep pushing at this, the way we push at it, the more we can empower individuals, to take their own mental health into their own hands, uh, I think that's that's really the way to go, because the more individuals can look after themselves, they're going to be better off, right? They can they can make those decisions, they can take that, they can have that agency, because organisations are not going to do it for them. Do you feel like organisations have a responsibility to be doing this type of work? Oh yeah, totally, hundred uh, percent. I mean. If yeah, this is it's a no-brainer. Organisations have an absolute responsibility uh, to be looking after staff. Good workplace mental health is a fundamental human right, in my view, and it is not just organisations that are putting people in harm's way that should be doing this. This is right across the board, and yet I don't think I don't see evidence that organisations have moved the needle any way, shape or form. And, and the reason I say that is because of the people who are writing to me since my book came out from obviously a lot from within Australia, but also the United States, the UK, Canada. And the stories I'm hearing are shocking of the way people are treated in the workplace. Moral injury has resonated widely and deeply. The organisational betrayal that they speak of, the use of NDAs to silence people who have been treated badly, uh, who speak up, to me, speaks of toxic organizations that put productivity over people. Uh, it's, it's pretty shocking. It is shocking, you know, and I think the thing that really is even more shocking than that for me, too, is like how people internalize that fear. You know, when I first started posting regularly on LinkedIn, which is kind of my main medium, I was talking about my own mental health journey and some of the corporate material that I experienced. The first responses that I was getting from people was like, are you OK? I'm worried that you're going to like ruin your career by doing this. It wasn't, are you okay? Are you like emotionally and mentally okay? I was like, we're worried. Like, are you mad doing this? What, what's wrong? Yeah. You know, you, yeah. You know, and, and it, that was a really interesting eye opener for me in terms of like just where mental health lives in terms of the conversation and what people are comfortable with or not comfortable talking about or hearing from. It speaks to a self-censorship, I think, Nicholas, that, that people feel they need to abide by when it comes to organizations these days and it's the silence it's it that it that does exist uh and it, and you're right fear is the word uh and it's what i saw at reuters when i was there people were afraid of speaking up about the stress that they were experiencing um and people were afraid of getting fired i had one i had one person who was a multi prize winning journalist who said i know this sounds odd but i'm even afraid of being made redundant 
And, you know, fear just pervaded the organization. And that, that is the sign of, of a sick culture. And I think when, when you get, look, I've been in the workforce now for 35 years. And I think that fear was, I, I don't recall fear when I first started working. I don't recall this sort of fear. It, I think it's, it's just, it's grown and grown. And to the point where uh, it's, it is so corrosive and it stops people from it stops people from speaking up it stops people from getting help and it runs so counter to the concept that um, i think amy edmondson uh came up with psychological safety right which is so crucial to to the good health of an organization So, you know, I'm kind of curious, you know, the whole idea behind this podcast is like the needs improvement podcast. And it's really kind of turning the, the, the phrase on its head, you know, typically needs improvement is like the lowest rating that you can get on a performance review. You know, I'm really trying to reclaim that and say, no, no, like what actually needs improvement is the environments themselves that create situations where people are not able to perform at their best or are suffering and not able to get the help that they need. And I'm kind of curious from your perspective, like with the work that you've done at Reuters and the advocacy you've done in the mental health space already, you know, what's it going to take? You know, like what's what needs to happen? What needs to change within these organizations so that these environments aren't toxic, that they aren't causing harm? Yeah, it's a good question, Nicholas. I think a couple of things can happen. The law can change. And so in Australia, we've, we've had legislation uh, change. It's, it's called psychosocial hazard legislation. It's very similar to, to physical um, issues in a, in a workplace, right? So organizations in Australia now are, are now on notice about the various, the various issues that can cause mental health issues in a workplace. So things like uh, burnout and and bullying and all these sorts of things. The, the legislation is emerging that is going to make it's it's going to make it possible for say directors of organisations to be to to be to to, end, to be charged for this sort of stuff. So that's a start. I think that's a huge. I think that's a huge step. But the problem is it, it it's going to take brave individuals to take companies and directors to court. Uh, I think one of the most effective ways of changing cultures is for people just to leave those toxic organizations and go and work somewhere else. The problem is that, you know, if you look at, let's say, public health, all most hospitals are, are terrible places to work. Uh, and, and so where do, where do people go? Um, most media, no, no, I'm not aware of most media organizations don't look after their staff. So it's not like a journalist can go from one news organization to another. People need to tell their stories. The more people that tell their stories, right, that share their stories, that I think is going to be a big way of addressing this so that it's the power of storytelling that just builds and builds and it shames organizations into doing the right thing. Because, you know, you talk about performance reviews, right, about individuals. I'd like to see performance reviews on organizations. You know, how are they doing year to year on key indicators of looking after their staff? Yeah. And in my opinion, that should be like table stakes, right? Like that, those types of things, like we tend to measure performance in terms of output. We tend to measure performance in terms of efficiency and things like that. But like the well-being of organizations aren't always really at the top of the, that list of concerns. And if it is, it's like almost as an afterthought. Um, 
and then, you know, you know, in organizations like I was in the tech space as well as media a long time ago, and I, I think I would agree with you, I'd say like just hopping from one media organization to another really isn't solving the problem. Same thing in tech. It's like, well, if Google isn't really holding up the banner of well-being and mental health, what am I going to do? Go to Amazon or Twitter? Like, I mean, that's, that's not that much better. Um, but, you know, I'm curious, like, you know, you mentioned earlier, like people really need to learn how to take care of themselves. You know, one of the things that I've been really espousing more recently is like no one's coming to save you. You know, it's there's not going to be like this white knight in shining armor from corporate HR that's going to come down and suddenly take care of you in a way that you need to. And I'm, I'm kind of curious from your perspective, like what are some of the things that people can really focus on that would move the needle the farthest for them on an individual basis? Like if they notice themselves struggling, what kind of care should they be thinking about getting for themselves? I think one of the positives, Nicholas, is, for, is young people are much more self-aware about their own mental health, right? So you talk to anyone these days who's in their 20s, they get mental health. Uh, they understand what it is and why it's important. And, and I think people in their 20s are less likely to compromise on their mental health than say we were in our 20s. We'd just work ourselves to the bone because that's what, that's what people did. Uh, young people are much more literate about mental health as well. And, and they'll talk about it with their friends. But you know, I was, I was actually in a, I was talking to an organization just last week and I said, yep, that's all good and well. What about at, organize, at, the organ, at an organization? Are young people willing to put their hands up and talk to their bosses? Still, the answer is no. So there's still that stigma. I, I, think, I think a lot of this comes down, when you talk about individuals, the key word here is self-awareness. If people have that self-awareness, if they know how they're traveling, and if they know themselves, then they can make the right decisions at the right time. So if they know they're struggling, if they know that they are, if they've got some stressful work coming up, some stressful projects, they can make the sort of decisions, put in place the sort of strategies that will help them get through that tough period. I worked with a photographer in DC. Uh, I met this photographer from Reuters in DC who would, she would have a pre-trauma plan before she went and did difficult, difficult stories. And I thought, oh, wow, this is amazing. I'd never heard anyone do this before. And, you know, for example, she had done a project a years-long project photographing survivors of mass shootings in the States. And, and I remember saying to her, this was years ago, I said, how did you cope with that? And she said, I had a pre-trauma plan. So every time she would go to a different group of mass shooting survivors, she would put in place this plan, which would involve certain elements, right? Uh, and, and there were just elements to that that I thought were extraordinarily smart. And I think this is what, this is what people have to do uh, you have a plan uh, and, and you just, you, you stick to it. But for me, you know, self-awareness was one of the things that was drummed into our heads in the psych ward. And when I say drummed in, I mean drummed in. Uh, it was in a lot of the group sessions we did. It was on notice boards. It was in things that were handed out. You know, this, this idea that if you know how you're traveling each day, you, you can make the best decisions you can. If you don't know where you're at at any point in time, You've got less, it comes back to control, right? When you, when you have this self-awareness, you can, you can make, you can, you can adopt good strategies, right? It's, and it's not about, it's not about controlling everything because we can't, but when you can, when you've got good self-awareness, you can, you can adopt good strategies. You can pull back if you have to, and then you can ride out some of the tough times a lot better than you otherwise would.
Something that you mentioned in the book that really resonated with me as well, like, you know, I've been doing meditation and mindfulness for many, many years now as part of what I was doing within Google as well, particularly during the pandemic, helping people bring self-awareness to their experience so they can help name the struggles that they were having. Um, you mentioned, and if I, I might be paraphrasing it, but you were talking about meditation and you were talking about control and control specifically almost as an emergency tool. I'm curious if you remember that and if, if you have some more thoughts around that. What does that actually mean? Yeah, so I, I sort of got into this, I got this idea into my head after reading some uh, some books by some of the great psychiatrists from the States like Judith Herman and, and, and clinicians like Babeth Rothschild that this the notion of trauma is is when trauma happens because people lose control right when when traumatic experiences occur that's because people have lost control of that situation and and for a way for people to regain it's important for people to regain control of their lives right but i, I took this to mean you've got to regain absolute total control of everything and that and 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 i, I just sort of misread what they'd written and so i was trying to uh, literally have complete control of every waking minute of my life, and it was a um, it was one of Australia's best known psychotherapists, Steve Bidoff, who explained to me he just happened to be my neighbour, and he said, "Look, you know this idea of control is an emergency measure. You it might work in it, it might work in a crisis, but you can't be like that uh, every minute of the day. You have to realise that there will be." There are going to be situations in life which will be unpredictable and that the brain uh, is going to react to things in a way that it will react whether you like it or not. But what matters is how you respond to those situations. And and he was completely right and I was completely wrong. And and for me, it, that helped sort of open the my understanding that what I needed to do was to sort of be curious about why I would get so upset, for example, at why the dog would bark suddenly, or if a certain event triggered me, if something triggered me, instead of just going off my head about it, ask myself, well, why did that just happen? And then sort of explore it, be curious about it. And then that that led further into understanding how the brain worked and, and, um, and then getting that insight enabled me to learn the strategies that would would help me to bring myself down to settle myself down and then you know to cut a long story short that led me into understanding why it was i was getting uh worked up in the first place why i was having this startle response which which went all the way back to iraq to the trauma i'd experienced there i did emdr therapy eye movement desensitization reprocessing that helped me get rid of the fear that had been locked in my body. And now I don't get startled much anymore. So I don't need to worry about control. I'm just living life pretty much like anyone else. Yeah, well, good for you on, on that journey. And EMDR too is something I've experienced and that was a transformational part of my uh, therapeutic process that I came to very late in the game. Uh, because I wasn't able to get a diagnosis of PTSD because of the nature of my traumas and what I experienced. It just never really rose to that. But when I went through EMDR, it was almost like within six sessions, I, I was a completely different person. And it was the same thing. If someone dropped a plate in the kitchen before, I would have been immediately in a high alert state. Or if I was in a large crowd of people and suddenly somebody jostled me in just a certain way, it would put me into this high alert state. 
and I just I just don't have those experiences anymore. And it's interesting too because like it's it's liberating, it isn't is. it, Nicholas, to be like that? Yeah, it really yeah. is, and it's 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 nerve wracking in some ways too because there's always this specter in the back of my head, you know, or used to be at least of like, is this going to be one of those instances that creates a startle response? So every time something happens and a, a loud noise goes off or a door slams and nothing happens within my body, it's like, ah, oh, congratulations! Like it's another another step forward away from that. But you talked about mindfulness, right? So, you know, I, I, I used to, and I did some meditation when I was really sick, but I, I don't meditate now. And I think part of it is because I live in this country environment here in Tasmania. It's so quiet. I'm breathing in this fresh air. I've got green, I'm surrounded by green pasture land and mountains. Meditation and mindfulness are sort of part of everything I do. But I, I, I had a, a reader who wrote to me uh, and said something really interesting. Uh, she is uh, a triple zero operator in Australia, which is your 999 operator, right? And and she works with police. And and I said to her, how do you cope with the, the job? You know, very stressful job. And she says, I practice mindful curiosity. And I thought, wow, I love that. Uh, and and she said basically that, that whenever she's feeling uh, elevated about something or stress, she, she uses that, she looks at it with curiosity, but in a mindful way. So really delving into it, and, and to me, that just that I just thought, wow, this is just I love this because it's it's being positive about and it's being positive and deliberate about why something might have triggered someone and, and trying to find an answer to it, find a solution so that you understand why it happened as opposed to getting upset about it. And I think that combines great elements of mindfulness and and curiosity together. Well, Dean, we're, we're coming up on time here. Uh, I'm just kind of curious, like for folks, you know, that may uh, be listening to this or maybe have come across your book or are kind of exploring this idea of corporate neglect or, you know, moral injury, you know, what are some resources or some things that you would recommend to somebody that maybe is the beginning of their journey to help get their head around some of this stuff and to, to find a pathway forward? Yeah, it's a really good question, Nicholas. Uh, there's not a lot out there on moral injury, I'll be honest. Um and there's not a lot out there on institutional betrayal either. Trust me, I'm looking. <laughs> In fact, yeah, I'm uh, I'm actually thinking of writing a second book on moral injury, solely on moral injury. Uh, and and so I'm looking for stuff. I, I'm I'm trying to get my head around what a what the book outline might how it might take shape. I but I think I think at the end of the day we can learn a lot from the moral injury research that has been done on veterans, and, and most of it has been done out in the United States on veterans. Uh, Brett Litz is the guru on this out of Boston University. Uh, he has led the way. But another person is Jonathan Shea. And uh, Jonathan Shea, he actually uh, first came up with the idea of the, the betrayal concept of moral injury. And he has written a couple of fantastic books, uh, Achilles in Vietnam and Odysseus in America. Uh, and they really, they, they sort of encapsulate that this organization, this, this concept of, of leadership betrayal. The context is Vietnam veterans, but it, it grabbed me. And I, I know it's, 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 it's helped a lot of people understand this concept. So I'd recommend that. But I think, I think there's a lot of work to be done in, in fleshing this out when it comes to people who work in organizations and, and, and how they can um, better understand it. So uh, watch this space. And if people are interested in following your adventures and learning more about what you're working on, like what's a good place for folks to find you? 
Yeah, just find me on LinkedIn or Facebook. I'm a pretty regular uh, poster, as you know. Uh, and and so I'm one of the things about me as an author is um, I, I you know I'm really happy for people to contact me. I believe in engaging with folks uh, who want to ask questions, and um, I, I like hearing from people because it, it helps me understand what people are interested in. Mm. And and that's that's one of the reasons why I'm thinking of writing a second book on moral injury is because so many people have said. That's what resonated with them from the first book. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Dean, thank you so much again for the book, for sharing your experiences, for bringing some more light to these topics, which are so, so critical to be discussed. Uh, we'll definitely be looking out for your next book and hopefully we'll get you back on the podcast again sometime soon. All right, that's a wrap for today's episode of the Needs Improvement Podcast. If our conversation resonated with you, do us a favor, share this episode with your network. We'll be back next month diving even deeper into what needs improvement in the modern workplace. Until then, take what you've learned and make your workplace a better place to be. See you soon.